You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Just before we get into the show today, just a reminder that I am on tour with my stand-up show Like I Mean It. Very excited about this one, and uh, it is coming to a town near you if you are near certain towns in the UK. All the details at comedianscomedian.com slash tour. Fill your boots. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. This is Stuart Goldsmith and this is the Comedian's Comedian podcast, the only podcast about comedy. Today I'm talking to Beth Stelling live at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas. Uh, you will know Beth from her Netflix special. She was one of the, uh, the six people in the first series of Netflix's The Stand-Ups. I urge you to check that series out. The second series as well uh, is currently available with people like Gina Yashere, who you'll know from this show, and Nate Bargatze, uh, a newer comic, newer to me at least, um, about whom I'm very excited. So you can see her stuff on Netflix. You can also find Beth's material on uh, Spotify. There's some older albums, and she's someone who's very interesting to chart the development of her persona over the last few albums, right up to her newer work. I'm really excited to have her on the show. Uh, as you will hear from this episode, there were one or two walkouts. Don't be alarmed. It's a laminate-based festival, which means everyone has these laminates around their necks that let them get into anything for free. So it's one of those events where people uh, try out various things. I walked out of numerous things myself. <laughs> not, not, well, not walking out in anger, but, you know, you think you're, you're expecting one thing, and then you go, oh, actually... This, this is a different meaning of the word theatre. This is all about surgery. Fine, then you leave. So uh, there's one or two of those. I think we've probably edited out most of them, but I'm just flagging that up in case uh, a couple of them sneak in under the radar. Nonetheless, I'm really pleased with this episode with the brilliant Beth Stelling. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. I first saw you at the Punchline in San Francisco as what? part of Sketchfest a couple of years ago. Yeah, really? you, were, you were doing a doubleheader with Maeve, Maeve Higgins. Higgins. Yes. Love her. And it was great, really great show. And then I saw your, in preparation for this, I saw your Netflix special, the half hour special. Did your homework. Thank you. I'm very good on homework. <laughs> and I felt like you were an, a whole other comedian. That's good. In a good way. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, that is a good thing, I think. Do you, do you feel like you've leveled up recently? Um, I think it's just such a long process. You know, I just did this, um, I, so I go on tons of tangents, but it just made me think of something, which is, uh, I write for the show Crashing on HBO, I wrote for season one and two. In season two, one of the guest stars is Wayne Fetterman. He is a comic and he's an actor. He had me come into his class because he teaches this, um, stand-up comedy class level two at USC. So he's like, will you come and speak at it? You know, they're really excited. They want to see it. I was like, okay, cool. So it's college students that eventually want to be stand-ups. So I go in, and speaking of how I've changed or whatever, they're talking to me because they've seen the Netflix thing, and that's kind of all they really know of me, you know, was just the half hour on Netflix. But after we began talking, it was like questions they just had for me. A lot of them were like, how do we get an agent? I'm like, slow down. (laughs) You don't want anybody to see you like this. 
you know, at this level. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you don't want anybody to, like, because when you first start, you think, like, well, better get this on YouTube so people can start seeing my work. And you're like, yep. horrible mistake. But anyway, I had them, uh, my little homework for them after I left was just, like, you should watch my very first Conan when I just moved to L.A. and I'm 26. And I couldn't even, I didn't even know how to say how I wanted my hair. Do you know? I was yep. like, how about we do it up? And I had, like, I'm not, like, much of a crier, um, but I almost cried before I went out my first time because I looked like prom. It was, like, it was like full-on, like, up here, and I was like, no, this is fine. This is what I could look like, absolutely. This yeah. is my look, you know, and because I didn't even know how to say, just when it comes to hair and makeup and stuff. So I was like, watch that, how I am there, and then watch the one I just did in... In November, I did my own hair, which could have been a mistake. And, um, but it was your mistake that you, yeah, owned, yeah. That you owned and thought about. But I was comfortable, about. and yep. I could have probably worn something more fashionable, but I wore the thing I was most comfortable in, and I'm more me. You know, at, at least closer to my personality, I guess. But I was just saying, like, that's it's great and okay to change as a comic, and I have. I mean, I think I've changed a lot. However, my defense mechanism always is, like, if I'm nervous or if if there's pressure on me i'm always like very chill you know like in auditions they're like excuse me are you alive you know can we (laughs) a little bit more you know because i think i'm just like and a lot of people think i'm drunk or high because i'm just i don't know calm (laughs) you are you are calm and it's interesting seeing that on stage like one of the notes i made watching the uh watching the netflix special was I want to ask you? We maybe get to this, but sorry, I wanna... was that too long at the end? I'm very judgmental of myself. And that Absolutely made sense, not. right? Is... Like that's how, it's Look. like 2012 to. Uh, I'm used to like immediate feedback. I'm like, hell, does everybody love me? <laughs> I told you, I told yeah. you this would happen. I know, I know. Yeah. Okay. If you did one tangent for 60 minutes, we'd all be thrilled. It's fine. Don't okay. worry about tangent. I was cold and then I was hot. I was like, okay, uh, but 2012 to, and then that was uh, 2017. So that was five years. Anyway, you have. I don't know what the what the correct terminology for it is. It a drawl? You. T- talk so kind of slowly and gently it's not just calm it's like it's such a deliberate laid back quality that you have (laughs) i don't know i will say because you know people are like what is your thing or what you know when you first start they're like well what's your shtick and people still kind of ask me that and now i've eventually started answering i'm like i don't know i talk about my life and my family, just stuff that happens to me. I don't know. Because if, if I were political, my answer would be like, I'm a political com- comic. Yes. Or, so when it comes to like, what's your style? Initially, I relied on this. Oh, God. Initially, I relied on this. Um, <laughs> re- the first review that I got in Chicago after this Lincoln Lodge. And it was like, uh, uh, it was something like calm, dry, and acerbic or something like that. And okay. I was like, mm, that's what I am. You know, you're just like clinging at things to figure out what you are because I didn't start watching any stand-up. In fact, I avoided it all entirely. I was terrified of stealing. So I didn't watch any... I, did, I, I never wanted to be a comic because I was watching like X, Y, or Z. My heroes growing up were Robin Williams and Jim Carrey. And um, so it was like they're, they're acting and getting attention like that. So I don't know why it comes out of me the way it comes out of me. You know, like I just remember sitting down to write initially. That's how I used to sit down was type it all out. And then you try not to make it sound like a monologue. But it just came out of me that way. And it came out of me when I first started extra calm, extra slow, extra quiet. And I used to the Chicago dudes, although I made many friends, would give me a hard time about being like, are you you whisper your punchlines? And they gave you a hard time. Why? Because they. Because I would get up there and I was just like, but. It was but too I will much. say everybody would listen. 
Yeah, but that's a great system. Like, that's a really yeah. good way. In a rowdy room, yeah. you can see a comic have to shout over the crowd and then someone much smarter will just move the mic further from their mouth and speak more quietly and get the fuck. Yeah, it ended up working to my advantage. Yeah. That made me think of something, but then I forgot. Oh, yeah, just I was just kind of quiet initially. Yes. I think I would just sort of... Yeah, and they would give me a hard time about being quiet, you know? Because I always had this insecurity that I would never kill with my style. Why, why, why? Cause, <laughs> why, why, why? Why, 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 why? <laughs> uh, because I think, you know, like I said, some of my heroes especially were so big and animated. Mm-hmm. And I think I wanted to be like that. And I studied acting and I went to school for theater and I was very animated in my face. I did speech and debate as a high school kid. I was like one of the few women in the um, humorous category. And that's basically like a one-woman show. You play all the parts. It's It's called humorous interpretation. So you would be like... Yeah, high school kid, like, doing all these, like, facial things. So I started getting my laughs that way. It was, like, kind of, like, the first little taste into stand-up. And then for whatever reason, like I said, it just came out of me, like... That's interesting, know? because I, I would have expected that the, the journey that most comics go on, I, I think, is often about trying to become more like yourself. Yeah. So I would have expected you to have started off more animated and then later realized that you could be closer to your own natural rhythm. Yeah, or started out animated, not gotten laughs, and been like, better not do that again. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's like to, to take such a big risk if you're doing some sort of huge act out and then the joke bombs, you're like, mm, <laughs> I'm going to pull back in. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm not going to take such a big risk with my body. Is there is there a certain... Uh, kind of comfort is there like a protection in that in the early days that if you are going slowly you're not you're not suggesting too much of a payoff sure yeah maybe that and then on top of it i think material wise if you're talking slower you go through less material smart (laughs) it's like changing your term paper to courier you know i don't understand that local reference see what you're missing (laughs) Off the dome. <laughs> so, so that initial. Talk to me about some of the other lessons you remember learning in those in the first years of of trying. Oh man, I mean the pure pressure and fear that I had developed of some of my peers there. Like, even though we're fine now and stuff, there is like a. It's going to be sound too like sensitive or something, but. Like a bullying aspect. I mean, I continued on, but <laughs> like where you're, I remember having to do some 24 hour fundraiser and there's a bunch of, there's these two dudes that I started in Chicago with that were just very like, you know, they, they knew everything. They could quote, they'd always be quoting comics that I, like I said, I didn't know. And I'd just be like, initially I'd pretend, you know, they talk about like Andrew Dice Clay or they talk about like Bill Hicks and they they'd just talk about all these people that they idolize and I'd be like, yeah, no, I love that one. Uh, but I would have no clue what they were talking about because I didn't want to know. And they also would give me such a hard time about, this sounds like I was like, Mwah. I we grew to be friends and everything, but I think there's a healthy amount of, of, of that. But they would give me a hard time for not doing open mics. Like I wouldn't do open mics. I would pretty much just do shows and like freaking test out my stuff there. Because I didn't want, my answer to that is, those guys I'm talking about and other ones who I may not have known as well, why would I go up in front of them and be like, let me test this stuff out and be vulnerable in front of assholes? Yeah. Or people, 
Yeah, he low, knows them. Gigs with low capacity, yeah, few people I get, in, lots yeah, of comics Yeah, because it's room. mostly, an open mic is at a bar typically, and it's comics sitting around, and sometimes they'll laugh for each other, and if they're, if you ha- if they have an alliance, it's, I've just turned it into an MTV show, <laughs> uh, if they have an alliance, they're going to laugh at their buddy that went up, and they would never like, this girl thinks she's funny. You know, like they grew to find me funny and sure. be supportive, but I think initially like, why would I go up and be vulnerable to them and be like, do you guys think this is funny? I don't care if they think it's funny at all. So I would just do my little show in Boys Town, which is a gay part of Chicago, with my best friends, the Butterboss sisters, and we would be silly together and we grew in that way together. We 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 call it um we learned how to put our briefcases away, meaning <laughs> we learned how to like just stop worrying about the set list, put away, get up there and just be funny together. Yeah, okay. I like the briefcases analogy. I often yeah. think of that as uh, like flying with your head in the cockpit. It's terrifying. You're too busy looking at all the dials yeah. to actually fly. Yeah, and I think that that's another part of it too. I still find myself married to a set list. Like, and it'll just be the difference for me in my head between fun and, and a good show and one where I'm more in my head, you know. But it varies on from show to show. Uh, what what I will be committed to on a on a set list or something like that, you know, and how comfortable I am. So, do you think that that process of performing in proper room, like presumably less frequently than if you were going out doing two or three open mics a mm-hmm. night, you learned differently, and you maybe learned in such a way that it was more true to discovering yourself? Yeah, that's possible. You know, because I don't know, I wasn't writing for them for one. And I didn't rely on what, yeah, I didn't, I did, like I said, I just think I was sort of like, when young comics would ask me, like, well, I, I'm scared to do it or I want to do it, my advice typically is, like, just do what you think is funny. That's the biggest reward. I remember watching some of, so there were a lot of comics I loved watching. I remember basically, I moved to Chicago to do theater. I did one sh- play, The Good Person of Szechuan, starring, uh, or by Bertolt Brecht. Um, it was in like a storefront theater because there's a ton of great theater in Chicago and then there's like a lot of storefront theater that no one's going to come to and it's pretty bad and you get paid like $100 for 17 weeks of work. And so I found myself like a 22-year-old jaded theater actor and I was like, well, I shouldn't be jaded at this age. And that's when I took it into my own hands and started writing my own stand-up and stuff. But, and then I started sort of casing the joint meaning. I would go to Chicago shows and be like, well, what is this all about? What is stand-up about? Because I did have... I did. Kind of, I wanted to do it, and I knew I wanted to do it probably since I was like eighteen. So then I start watching people, and you get. And I'm sure if comics are listening or in the audience, they did the same thing. You've, you're in the city you're in. You're like, okay, I know I want to do it, so I'm going to go to an open mic. Maybe I'll watch, and I'm just definitely going to sit there because I can't sign up. That's terrifying. And then you start going to shows, and you have these moments where you're like, I'm better than that guy. Yeah, totally. I was going to say that's. that's and you're the like, next... well, if he's up there talking yeah. about his dick, I can get up there, you know, and not <laughs> talk about my dick. Uh, you know, and then there'll be people, I remember like Sean Flannery, and I was like, oh, I can't do that. Because I was like, he is so good. And he's he, he is a great comic. And, and then people like Prescott Toll, cool. Basically, I remember watching them and thinking, the joy that I found, you know, basically as a comic, the longer you go, you can still be laugh. If you find a new comic that you've never heard and they make you laugh, like, what a joy. You know, like, oh my God, I am still alive. You know, I can still feel, I can still be tricked. But, um... Another comic you'd watch and you may respect them and know they're funny and the way you laugh at their jokes is like, that's good. 
or yeah. like, um, or yeah. I wish I thought of that. I was yeah. watching Anna Saragina in LA. We did a show together a couple weeks ago and she has this bit, which obviously I don't want to like put on blast here, but it was very funny. She has a thing where she was able to, I don't know. I don't want to like tell her joke, but it's a long, like her scarf was like, you know, she's like sings a song to describe a scarf. And I was like, <laughs> I wish I wrote that. Like, so I'm not laughing, but I'm like, that was great. Yeah. You know? And so I think eventually the joy of, what what I'm finally coming around to is when I when young comics are like, what do I want to do? You say, right, what you think is funny. But the, what that ends up creating, the biggest reward is if I'm writing what I think is funny and it's so unique to my brain and then five people, okay, if everybody laughs, wow, okay, great. But if like seven people laugh, you're like, wow. So yes. they also know what I know or they also know what I saw. And those can be just as fun laughs too. Like I have this joke right now where I say the last guy I had sex with, it was so bad. It felt like fucking a rectangle. And it'll hit with maybe like, I don't know, 40, 60, 20, 80. And I'm like, yes. Yeah. That resonated with the people it needed to resonate with. Yeah. How do you, I, I love it. And I remember that joke from last night. Yeah. It's, a, it's a lovely joke. And particularly, it's a lovely joke in the context of, uh, it's quite an unusual joke for you. For yeah. what you've set up on stage, it's quite you know you're dry, acerbic <laughs> as we've as we've learned. But dark, uh, but dark was dark, yeah, dry, dark, and acerbic. Um, but that one, that's uh, my friend uh, Alfie refers to that as throwing in a dafty. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You just chuck something in, makes you laugh, and that, you yes. know. And so, talk to me about then the development of that audience because I I think something I fell prey to in the in the early days of my comedy career was, well, two things in particular. One, I had this idea in my head of what a comedian should be, and then yeah. I tried to do an impression of that. Sure. I think a lot of people end up doing that. It sounds like you completely avoided that. Somehow, because like I said, really it was fear-driven. You know, like I've grown to love and know, and now I watch, of course, and I think I, you can see probably who I have been inspired by or people I've ended up touring with or something who I idolize. I mean, like I jock Sarah Silverman style all the time. You know, I toured with her a lot, all last year. I adore her. She, you know... Um, so I think eventually I did start, um, being open to watching without fear of like stealing, you know, but that is, but even still, I still have that in my head. If I'm out watching a ton of comedy and I'm like, Oh, what if I wanted to do a premise on that? It would be my deepest fear to have someone think I stole something from them. I was around Brooklyn. So writing on the show this summer, I get to, or last summer, that means I also get to do stand up in New York as long as I'm not tired from the days. But there was a young comic that I did her show in, in the middle of nowhere, Brooklyn. She did a, sh- uh, a she goes up before me, and it's a joke like pretty similar to mine, but obviously I think mine's better. <laughs> okay, that was mean. I didn't mean it like that. I just meant like you're you have obviously you're like no, but I like the way I do it. So I had to talk to her afterwards, and I know, rarely have to do that. I was like, just so you know, I would hate it if you see me do a joke later because I may, might have a bigger reach, or you see me. And you would think that I took that from you. So I just want to let you know, I do have a joke that's similar to that. And then I ended up getting her on the show um, because I felt really bad because I didn't want to, you know, so she plays like she plays a comic on the show. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly how you should deal with that yeah, situation. Like, it's like, just so you so know, I, uh, let's put it in My joke's better than yours, but I will get you on HBO. Great. That helps. <laughs> yeah. Um, if only every comic worked like that yeah. every time you see a famous comic and you think hang on that's familiar if you go no no it's fine they got they didn't just pay them off yes. they got them an opportunity yeah. that's what made me look. but I'm sure the truth is she could still do her joke and I could still do mine but I forget did I even answer your question well I the, so the, the second part of my question was that of those two 
I was saying there was, there was two things I particularly remember falling prey to. One was doing an impression oh, of what right, I thought a, right, a comic right, should right. be like. And the other was wanting to get everyone in the room laughing. Now, that's important. Right, right. But in the early days of your career, I think, as again, as you identified, it's more important to make people who are going to like what you do and, ins- yes. you know, people who are going to become super fans. Yes. You get them rather than be like, well, everyone in the room thinks I'm quite good. Right, because then, yeah, I know. I, I Yes, so I know exactly what you're saying. And I think I've always been able to, since I started, well, I have uh, been able to do both co- comedy clubs and all rooms, um, which I don't know exactly how I've done that. I think I can maneuver in between because I do write jokes, but I also can still go into an alt room, um, which I don't know if we need to describe th- that. Yeah, we, yeah, please. Like a comedy club would be, so say where I started, you know, in Chicago, Zany's Comedy Club, very sort of rigid and, and strict, like before a, you even get to go on. A commercial comedy club. Yeah, before yeah. you get to go on, you literally have to sit through a speech from the owner about like the rules and what it means and where you start. And you, you typically start as a host and you work your way to feature, which is the middle act. And then maybe if you're lucky, you would be a headliner. But I actually ended up skipping straight to feature because he viewed me as a character. Like he didn't think I could get up and be like, hey, everybody, so who's having a birthday? See those cards on your table? Fell them out. You know what I mean? And he was right. Because I, I was still very, I'd be like, hey, um, welcome to the show. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, right. Which is so a great way of, of like avoiding that work. Myself. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, that pretty much ended up benefiting me too so then i get in at the club and they you do need to have like jokes 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 and then an alt room which is pretty much the rest of the city in a way like my show was in a dive bar called town hall pub it was the people would call it the only straight bar in boys town but that's just because it was like not nice it was carpeted and it looked like your grandmother's basement but you could still like go in there and of course gay people were absolutely there and welcome but they called it the straight bar because it was nasty um (laughs) yeah so then you have that venue and then you have uh mostly bar shows all around chicago so you could kind of call that definitely the alt meaning alternative to a comedy club you know you're not you don't have to two drink minimum you don't have to go in and it's not like here we are at a show and it's it's more um do it yourself and so in those rooms you want to sort of they'd rather you instead of like get up and be presentational as they want it to feel sort of like I just I'm just we're just talking I'm just coming up with this right now sure. let, me, let me see let me tell you about my day you know and then you work your jokes in yeah so I think and there's I think like they, a finesse I, to them do they I, I, as I understand it those rooms value originality right. over like blanket yeah and you can watch someone who might be funny and good go up and bomb if they were just like here's what I like this is the next joke this joke this joke you know it might just be lost on them because they wanted to have a more relaxed vibe or something like that did i still not answer the question no you did you absolutely did um so what was the do you remember the first bit the first substantial bit where you felt like oh this is me this is it this is what i'm supposed to be following this this direction yeah i would guess um sorry i'm smiling because i'm thinking of old videos of myself from chicago and they're really upsetting uh to watch (laughs) it's like um why because yeah, it's actually making me gag a little. Um, <laughs> if you watch the videos, they're just like kind of put on, and I don't know how to describe it. No, Sorry. this is this is really important because I, I feel yeah. like I know the territory. Yeah, I wish we could watch one right now and barf together, but 
Well, if you get a name one, if it's available on YouTube, oh, still, yeah. then listen. No, I mean can I have know. it. Oh yeah, okay, you're I right. have it on DVD. Don't put it on YouTube. Yeah, oh no, no, <laughs> it is on YouTube. Okay, because I told you that mistake, and it's just to private. Okay. So I could send you the link. Send me the link it's and then listeners upsetting. of this show only can yeah. watch you be bad. But the truth is I could now even um, go back and kind of rewrite some of those to actually work for myself now. But I think then, yeah, they were just sort of like, they're just more put on. And it is kind of the courier vibe where you're just like, come on, babe, let's pick it up. You know, like a little too making a meal out of a sentence. You know, I, I think now I do value a bit more. I value word economy. And even though I still am laid back and slow, I do like jokes per minute, you know. Um, yeah. So this was like, I guess the first bit that I can remember where I was like, this is my bit uh, would be the story of Wet and Wild Water Park, um, where the punchline is <laughs> okay um let me explain it was like the first water part my, we would go down and i still worked in some of these jokes by the way but the, the old joke is and i think it's on my first album although whenever i look back at some of my old work i'm like please don't listen to that um basically i say my sisters and i would go down to visit my parents were divorced my sisters and i would go down to orlando visit my dad because it was court ordered and he would take us to this water park called wet and wild and I talk about all of us going down this slide as a family. And my sister went down and her top flew up. I mean, this is all real, but I was like really putting it on. You know, her top flew up. I can't remember all these punchlines, but. And then my dad goes on. He started with shorts. He ends up with a thong, you know, like. And then I went down and I basically I lost my virginity. Uh, <laughs> so then I say they. Dare Stuka, I think they should uh, name it. I just douched ya. <laughs> yeah, I apologize. And, and which, um, what element of that did? Do you remember what element of that felt like? Like, what was the reason that you went? Hang on, this is this is the right. I territory. think because it felt like my my strongest bit. Like it was long, it was strong, and it was down to get the friction on. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. It, it, it was. It did. I. It felt like. Uh, an anchor, you know, a pillar of a set. So yes. like if you have, a, if, if in your mind, you know, you're like, well, I start with this pillar and then I'll just somehow make it to the next one and then I'll somehow make it to the next. So it felt strong and it always got laughs. But do you have a sense now of why that was, why it felt so strong? Because I think for looking at it from the outside, we I, might say, oh, the reason that works is that resonates with like an honesty of like, we can smell that you're being your real self in that. Sure. And it, you know, the material there is... <laughs> Smell was a bad example. No, I don't even know. I was, I was kind of just trying to figure it out while you were Well, talking. what I mean is, I think when someone, when a comic finds their voice, in, in inverted comments, in air quotes, when someone finds their voice, I think you, part of that process for an audience is that we go, this is true. This yes. isn't just a person saying things that they think will make us laugh. True. There's some note of truth here that we're going, this is them, this is real. Yes, and I think that that was always very important to me. I remember, I can pick out maybe one or two times where it has happened to like a friend of mine. And then I wrote the punchline and it felt wrong. And she's like one of my best friends. Okay. So it was like, the joke was, uh, it's on an album somewhere, but basically she was riding her bike and some guy on a curb leaned over to her and he goes, sex, you know, like that. <laughs> and, and then she just told me that story. And then I wrote the joke where I just say, no, 
You know, it's really more of a song that we created together. It's hard to write away from somebody when you collaborate like, like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> so like that was the joke. I just fucked it up. But when you collaborate like that, that was the joke. So <laughs> everything was true. And when it wasn't true, I could pick it out. And it bothered yes. me. <laughs> like, yes. So I think that, that yeah, that, that is the point. It was like family based and, and also a story. I would say, because I also, then there were those fears too, that I would become like a storytelling comic and I didn't want to just be that. Because I was like, can I write jokes? You know, if, if, if I'm getting my biggest laughs on a story, beginning, middle and end, you know. But also that was my first intro to um, somebody coming after me for stealing. Somebody came and said something like, this is a, and then they named some Midwestern comics bit. He has a joke about the, this water slide being a mile long enema. And I don't know how they got in touch with me back then. It was probably like Facebook or something. But it was something like, you you stole this. I mean, obviously that crushed me because I was like, no, I didn't. But then it made me feel safe too because I was like, I don't know who Brett whatever is. Like, well, how would I come in contact with him? Mm-hmm. So, I, but it that was like, like I said, one of my biggest fears. And so I think that that is the first time that someone like accused me because stealing is like a weird fear of mine, you know? <laughs> So this is Beth. I really urge you to check out her stuff online. No better place to start than with that recent Netflix special. And uh, she just has such a command of the stage. One of the things I love is how kind of rich and flavorful her comic voice is. She affects this wonderful laid back and high status. And it's just an incredibly rich kind of voice. So I, I really urge you to listen to her stuff. Uh, Now, as I have mentioned in previous episodes, uh, in the last few at least, there has never been a better time to become a regular subscriber. Thank you to those of you who've been getting on board with that. Big announcement coming soon regarding subscription payments to the podcast, be they via Moonclerk, Patreon, or indeed PayPal. You can at the moment still do one-off donations, but I'm considering uh, removing that option because actually I'm much happier when people kind of join the club and uh, and hopefully there's going to be lots of stuff on the way. I, I've, said, I've said too much. <laughs> it's a good time to join. I don't want to overpromise, but there is a real concrete thing happening soon. So look forward to that. Um, also, a lovely bit of correspondence. I just want to say thank you to Robert Hone for, and I'm sure I'm mincing the pronunciation of your surname there, Hone Hoon or Heen, H-O-E-H-N. How are you supposed to pronounce that? He took me to Paris recently, just done some lovely gigs uh, in Paris for French fried comedy. Thanks to everyone that came along to that show, uh, and in particular, thank you to uh, Aaron and Lachlan and Kalia, who came en masse from Ecole Philippe Gaulier. And I hope they took back with them some a little bit of light in the constant painful darkness of clowning. So, uh, yes, they had a fantastic time in Paris, and I'll tell you a little bit more about how that show went down later after the episode. But for now, let's get back to the sensational Beth Stelling. Dan Soder and I were headlining um, Zany Chicago, not co-headlining to be confused with that, but um, he did the, this is, it's kind of odd for a comedy club to do this, but I took all the early shows and headlined them and with the same host and feature and he took all the late shows and headlined them, um, which works out great because um, you get to do one show a night and that's kind of like a gift. But he, we were talking about this and since both we were both on the stand-ups, the Netflix show, and more people have for sure started to, were able to find us and then are coming out to see us at comedy clubs, you know, to see 
the rest of our material or our new hour or whatever. And we were just describing it as it feels great to have people who come out and carry the crowd. Do you know what I mean? Who are like, who get you, who are your fan. You're like, no, we, you know, cause I can see your face and it like makes me feel good, you know? And so now when you have more of that all around, it'll bleed into the other people who are like, yeah, maybe I can be on board for the next part, you know, or whatever it is. And Dan was describing it basically as drops in a bucket, you know, like that's what you're, careers unless you skyrocket into something like you become some sort of vine star or you get on a hit show because we've seen that happen with our friends too sure. even with something like what is it um like like maybe daily show like hassan minaj or something like that we all start, started together in la and that like skyrocketed him so and he's ready for it he, he did a great mm-hmm. hour but point being typically it would be you know like drops in a bucket you're you're gaining your crowd over over time and it's very rewarding but it's also kind of like that's it works for me because I'm a patient person and I don't I don't my my goals when I started were I want to make money being funny and I don't mean like (laughs) I just mean like I don't want to make another bagel sandwich you know what I mean it was it was like I just want to be funny I just want to make fun on this on the subject of living succeeding on the subject of victory one of your jokes in um uh your most recent album on spotify which i love it's my favorite joke on the album was you were talking about uh meeting encountering someone that you used to go to school with in a donut <laughs> shop and just the end of that which i will slightly spoil the end of it if that's okay by talking about it w- one of the things that i uh, really jumped out at me is like oh that's really that's pure stelling right there <laughs> is you you say at the end of that what's the line at the end of the routine i don't want to murder it could you um... it's you're talking one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss about how it oh, right, made right. The, the hockey thing. yeah we basically uh, it was kind of like winning that district championship all over again yeah I and mean, right. what I love about that the setup is you encounter someone at school and uh, someone formerly at school in a donut shop she used to bully you or whatever you know, there was that kind of yeah, she, was the opposite. she was our rival team basically yeah. a nearby school and they really did hate me I mean I was the team captain and I definitely ruined their lives with my stick skills uh, but yeah, they like they even they would they wrote spray painted number ten. Oh, I am wearing yeah. Hey. Number ten sucks. But I mean, I, I obviously guys, I didn't suck. <laughs> but what I love about it is that that joke. I think it deceives the like, the structure of that joke is that I listened to it imagining that you were going to say that made it up for all those times they beat us at hockey. And then at the last minute, it's like, it's like you you not only won the encounter in the donut shop, but you also used to thrash them at hockey. And that that contained like a really pure note in it that I was like, oh yeah, that's great. I really like Good. that. I'm glad. That's not a question. But that but, is real. Uh, that girl, I, yeah. 
and sometimes like I will make jokes like that and then I feel bad because it's basically saying like if you work in food service uh, you know what I mean but I worked in food service forever and so it's not one of those things it's just a matter of genuinely her and her teammates were fucking mean to me (laughs) and they were nasty on the field and then now she has to give me jelly donuts whenever I want I'm sure I can't go back at this point because it's I don't know if she heard it, but I don't think I may have a safe donut to eat ever again. (laughs) (laughs) I worry about that with the TSA as well. I'm like, I wonder if they will fuck with me now, especially if any of them. But I also look like such garbage when I fly. I hope that they just don't recognize me. I want to talk about some of the effects... I'm not going to bounce off that into a thing about you looking like garbage. Where can no, I go I know, as an interview with that? <laughs> I just mean like, yeah, who cares? Given your more recent success, the more the, that there are now more drops in the bucket. Yeah, does not that, a ton, but at least one. Does that change the way you walk out on stage? Does it change your confidence in the room? You were talking about that effect mm-hmm. of like, you know. It helps for sure because... Sometimes you can dread going on the road in a comedy club because it can just be people who don't know who you are and you come out and if they don't know your style or if they're not expecting or they expect a certain night and then it's you, they're going to be very disappointed and it's not going to be fun for you either. So if people are coming out that already have an idea of what they're going to get, that can only make my experience more fun. You know, and I can tell right away because if I'm making, if I just say one little line at the top and people like erupt, I'm like, thank god you're here you know and for not if not i did i mean i i have saves for it you know like if you guys don't know who i am like i I usually come out to like the uh, dr dre song that's really big and then i i say i do that because then i come out and it's such such a stark contrast because i'm like the sarah mclaughlin of stand-up comedy (laughs) and so then if people like kind of laugh at that, I'm like, okay, well, then they're on board. But otherwise, if a dude's there to see someone, going back to what we said earlier, that's really big and animated, and like, crush, 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 I feel inadequate. And I feel like, you know, like I'll never kill like that because I'm not huge and, you know, do tons of act outs. And I'm more like, I like, someone reviewed me once and said it felt like I was talking to my best friend, like a conversation. And I do, I like that. What elements do you think that, like, we've some of your kind of superpowers are that, you know, the way you use language, the relationship you have with the audience. What elements of your comedy practice are there that you wish you were better at? Mm, I can sometimes crowd work will go well for me, like, if it's just natural and I feel comfortable and stuff. But other times, I, I would say I could go out of my way to do crowd work to get better at it. So yeah. if it needs to happen, it'll happen. It's usually if I have to kick somebody out. Um, and I, and, and because people, you also just kind of have to learn that, you know, because people, as you see online, people find these heckler videos to be like, so they're always blown away by them. You know, when like this comic defeats heckler. Comedian destroys so-and-so. And And then you watch the video and it's actually just, yeah, I don't like you. Right. Well destroyed. I know, and often they're not like that because they're often not captured, I guess, you know? But the truth is it feels so powerful in the room to those people that were there because all you have to do to really win is just say the first thing that comes to your mind, you know, and the crowd will be sort of impressed because you have the mic. But yeah, um, <laughs> you just gotta kind of come up with the first thing that comes to your mind. What was the question? 
I was talking about the difference in how you perform now that there are fans in the room. Okay, yeah. I'm more comfortable, like, for sure. It just makes my time better. And then in my own mind, I can get a little worried, like, oh, don't get too comfortable. Because you had to work so hard to win some of those people over. And I might have a view in my head of people who don't like me, and they might like me, you know? Like, and I was shocked, and Denver had this group of, like, um, bikers, that came out that were fans, like bikers with tattooed heads, you know? And I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting, you know? And they sat in the front row, like super amped. I did end up having to kick out his wife because she got so <laughs> she got so drunk, yeah, that she stood up and fell over in front of the crowd. And then I had to, like, sing. I had to sing. You had to sing? Yeah, just to get it. While they let her out, I sang a Sarah McLaughlin song. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they got her out safely. But yeah, it's easier. And so then I worry that I'm not working as hard because it's, but I'm not in that place. Sometimes that's the fear of comics. If you, you know, blow up too much and then everybody that comes out, you is just kind of hanging on your every word, you know, which is, I'm not saying that's where I am. I'm saying when you have such a huge fan base that then you lose your discerning quality, you know, like where a crowd will kind of laugh at anything and you get away with having these soft jokes when really you need to craft something that's stronger. You know, you don't almost need to go someplace where nobody knows you to get a real, you know. So I'm enjoying the extra that I'm given, you know, because I can get away off of my charisma and charm if a joke doesn't totally hit. But Let's talk a little bit about the craft then. Whereabouts are you in the life of the material that you were doing last night in Esther's Follies? Yes. So, so the bit, the particular bit that stuck out for me last night was the uh, the koala care. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> I think that I am in a place where I've been in like an on again, off again relationship, and so I've been I've been dealing with what it feels like to be single again for the first time, and so that's been with it since probably. October, okay. feeling what it feels like to actually have to put yourself out there again. And I, I mean, I, I was constantly in a relationship with not the same person, but different people. I have a joke about it in an old special where I say I'm a Tarzan dater. Like before I let go of one dick, I'm just like swinging in the next dick. You know? <laughs> so there's really only a brief period of time where you can catch me without a dick in my hand. So anyway, <laughs> but that's not even, you know, but the truth is, it's like, it's the person's, it's someone I it's someone I know and I've known very well. So I'm very comfortable dating people that I've known. And now to put myself back out there, I'm starting to write jokes now within the last year that I find to be sexual. And I really avoided that when I first started because I went to some of those open mics around Chicago and I would watch girls get up and we were still in the minority. You know, there weren't as many girls and they would sort of get up and be just instead of necessarily funny, it'd be more graphically sexual. Like, Along the lines of like, you know, I was getting fucked in the butt and there was like poop everywhere. And you're just like, what is happening? It was was offensive. (laughs) That's the only two that's available. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, you see someone talking about super graphic sexual things with no punchline and it felt like, oh no, this is not what I want for my gender. And so I, as a 22 year old, when I started, I was like, I'm not going to be like really graphically sexual. I don't want to make women look bad. I, I really did kind of take on this. I'm representing women. Uh, as comics in Chicago and I really was in a way because I was I was always the only female on the lineup for years and then more and more people started flexing flexing in but like that doesn't mean I was the only female comic in Chicago by any means it just meant that there was like seven shows going on so we were all on the job you know so like 
you know, um, I'm trying to think of like the putter bars might be on a show over here. Cameron might be on a show over here, you know, but we weren't like, we weren't often on the same lineup because there was just few of us. So I did feel that sort of like I got to represent as well. And I don't want to be up here just talking about getting railed. So (laughs) now (laughs) that I am 32, I think that I've been doing it for what now, 10 ish years or something. I am allowing myself to talk about sex. So I like to think I do it in a creative way, but I'm finding myself doing it more and I'm very judgmental of myself on it. Like it's been hard for me to be like, shit, if people come and see me and anything, I'm just like some gross comic that only talks about sex stuff. Cause it's, it's, I'm very judgmental of myself. My, like I just did the date and funny bone in February, which is my hometown in Ohio. And my grandma came out and surprised me and she's 98. And I was just talking about sex stuff, and I was like, no. So I had to address the situation. I was like, my mom was worried. She was like, are you going to talk about graphic sex things? And I, so I said that in front of everybody, of course, because my mom was worried pre-show. And I was like, mom, you know, grandma's had it. You know, like, <laughs> we don't want to think about it, but we don't want to think about what kind of sex it was, but it was the kind that worked because you're here. <laughs> and then my grandma laughs, you know, and then I tell the story. of So I connected her into things, but I, because it's my hometown, I also had my best friend's parents in the front row. And at one point I just leaned down and I hugged them. I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, and she emailed me later, my best friend's mom, and was like, we learned a lot. <laughs> I mean, I have the email somewhere, but it's long and supportive, but it was just like, yeah, essentially that. So now I think I'm talking, my material is more that, because I'm, I'm not having sex, um, but <laughs> I'm thinking about it. I'm dipping a toe in the idea of having sex with someone I haven't known for years. It's not going to happen, but that is where my mind is, where I'm just like, would I date again? I don't know. And when you are doing shows from show to show, do you ever record the material and listen back to it? Do you, yes. how do you, is that one of the methods? Yes. Talk, talk me through it. Yeah, I record every single show I do. Yeah, and then I usually watch it for time too while I'm up there so I know how long I've been going. But um, I have, I listen more than some some comics just record everything and never listen. And to never it. listen, yeah. That comes and up I a did lot. that for years, and I have hundreds and hundreds of recordings that I've never listened to. Yeah. Um, but I do, especially if I'm at a club on the road. I'll my homework for the next day is to listen from to my set from the night before, and that is sometimes good and sometimes bad because, like, even just in Zany's last weekend, I listened to my Friday night set, which I was having so much fun, and it was like, like I was very loose and I was like riffing. And then if I listen to myself be like that, I'm like, how do we? do it again, you know? And then if you try to put structure on something that is just you free-flowing and being yeah. yourself, I end up having a worse show on Saturday night. And we're, I'm a perfectionist, so worse is fine. But it's not good enough. What's fine, but it's not good enough, do you say? The show wasn't good enough. Oh, but I'm sure you. people had fun. Sure. Yeah. So, Like, they laughed and stuff, but... So when you're... <laughs> it's nothing like this, but yeah. <laughs> So when you're, like, what environment is that in? Are you listening back to it, sat in, my, in front of a computer? Are you walking around? What's your... In my hotel room on the bed, usually, up again, yeah, propped up for some lumbar support. And, <laughs> yeah, press play, have my notebook out, and then I'm writing down the way it works the best. And how is that psychologically when you're listening back to a tougher show? Is it more useful if the show is tougher? Mm. 
you know what? Sometimes I don't listen to the tough ones, but I also do to remind myself that I'm a psycho and it wasn't that bad. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like I, I should listen to my show from last night. I got off stage and I was like, yeah, man, you were really not in it. You know, because at one point on stage, I was like, sorry, I just fell asleep. You know, because I did. Yeah, I was just like, because I. I wondered if that night. was a bit. It was so funny. Your recovery from that was so funny. Oh, I was like, you. oh, that's the falling asleep bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think sometimes I just get in my head and I'm judgmental. And so, um, yeah, sometimes I need to listen to it to be like, you need to calm down. They were laughing. It wasn't as bad as you thought. So Absolutely. I have done that. I find sometimes I listen back to ones that, that I have the, the uh, inverse problem. I listen back to ones going, well, I smashed that. So let's, <laughs> this is going to be great. And you listen back and I don't think it was as good as I thought it was I've at the time. Too. Jesus. Yeah, I've had to do it. Yeah. Because you can't always remember, especially doing a 45 minute set. You can't always remember everything that hit. But also sometimes I'll improvise something and, I'll, and then I'll have it recorded so I can remember to put it back in. Yeah. Put it in new. <laughs> Uh, if it's okay to take some questions from the audience, um, <laughs> from from the, the ones lo- that are left have earned it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly. Yeah, the, your loyalty has earned you some questions. I really wish when the lights came up, though, it was just my gal. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I do appreciate everybody who stayed. But uh, <laughs> while people think of questions, what do you want out of comedy? What will what will satisfy you? Um, I feel like, you know, maybe it sounds like, I don't know if this sounds believable or not, but like I am doing it. Like I, like I said, I, I think there's always, I've always set goals, especially when I first started. And those goals were just like perform at Lakeshore Theater, you know, or perform someday I'll get to do this someday I'll feature. So like, I think I had a lot of those goals initially and I have my list like somewhere at home and I'll be like, be on the tonight show or you know this or that and those have changed because as you grow you realize like oh some comics just aren't right for this particular talk show and some of them are better and then david went off the air but um you know so you kind of change and adjust but now i will say i have met that goal of i get to be a full-time comedian so i do feel happy and like that that i am living it um what was the question um what will satisfy you in comedy what do you want from comedy? yeah so i think I am satisfied, but I also think I would I, I like to continue to grow my people that come out. I think it scares success kind of scares me because I already kind of said that. Whereas like if everybody in the crowd already likes me and I don't have to work for it, then am I really funny? You know what I mean? I don't know if that makes any sense. Like so, if it's just I, I, a full thing of people who love you and no one hates you. <laughs> <laughs> no one's unhappy to be there. Uh, then that's a sign of failure somehow. Yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe I I think I'm just a little bit scared of, yeah, I don't have these dreams of not being able to, who would, not being able to go places. But um, <laughs> I just think, like, I don't necessarily, I don't crave fame. I crave, like, people coming out and I get to laugh and perform on a good show and we feel good together because I was able not everybody wants to talk into a mic and say things. So if I can do it for us, well, won't that be fun? You know, like basically I've said this before in an interview, but like when I say something weird or something that was to me or something I've been through in my life and people are laughing, then we get to do it together. They've, they're basically saying like, ha ah, me too. You know, like that's what they're saying is me too. Or at least I get it, you yeah. know? So that's like, that's my pure joy is that. Thank you. Yeah. Any question over there? 
Yeah, can I you, think can so. Can you put the question into your answer? Oh, uh, sure, sure. Basically, the question was, yeah, they're not my, uh, was I started more deadpan and have I grown more into myself? Um, because, like, yeah, and I was a theater person and all this jazz. I was theatery in my actor world, and then I go into stand-up and I'm very deadpan. I will say my first, like, an evening with at Nerd Melt in L.A. was probably the first time, and I don't know when that was, maybe 2013? I don't know, um, where I thought, I remember very clearly going, wow, that's the closest I have been to myself. It was my hour at, at Nerd Melt, which is this comic book store in L.A. So it took a long time. I started in 07, so it took, like, to 13 for me to be like, oh, I'm closest to myself on and stage. You, and, and more animated and... And, uh, yeah. and drawing more on your theatrical experience. Yes, yeah, more facial expressions and yeah, feeling more comfortable to probably do that. Question is about uh, you, what you said about not wanting to be a storyteller, not feeling that that was enough or a high enough right. level. To, I think to that's something to. put on. Like, there's so many pressures that are put on by comics. They spread things among each other. Like, you got to get up five times a night, or you're not a real comic. Or you know, if you don't do late night, or if you don't get this or that, you know, or or. Um, even when I did the half hour, it's like, ooh, because an hour is like a, a real, like, uh, what am I trying to say? An hour is more prestige, you know? So it's like to, to only do a half would be like, are you not good enough to do an hour? So, like, there's all these things that we, like, put on each other. Each year you come up with a new hour, you know? So I think storytelling, if you're just that, uh, maybe that's just another little thing that goes around comics. Like, well, you're just, you just do stories, though. Can you write a joke? And... So I think that's maybe where that came from. But the truth is, like, in Chicago, I did The Moth, and that was one of my greatest memories, is doing The Moth. I told this story about my dad feeding raccoons. He's, he feeds, like, 79 raccoons. I remember that story from San Francisco. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. And so um, that is one of my greatest experiences. So it's not that storytelling's easy. It's not that it's not jokes. Because to me, sometimes my stories, like the Wet and Wild one, that was my first feeling of, like, okay, like, I can do this. I can make people laugh. And that's just a story with jokes Along the way, you know, it's a miniature version of a full set when I was describing like the pillars of getting you in between things. So I don't look down on storytelling. Sometimes it just feels like it could be a separate thing or it's almost safer, you know, because you have a beginning, middle and end and you are saying a story, whereas a joke just feels riskier. It's shorter and... Yeah, the jeopardy is greater for you. So you feel that's more of a success to have achieved. Yeah, I think so. Maybe that's what it yeah. is. But yeah, I don't look down at storytelling and I still have a lot of stories in my act. And I they, and I think that it is important to incorporate them actually into your stories, into your, um, in my new hour, like I'll have a couple. I always have a couple um, of stories like from my real life and everything like that. Because it connects uh, you to the people because you're telling something that actually happened to you. And are there, are there stories from your life that you are waiting to tell until you have even more skill? Yes. <laughs> Intriguing. Thank you. That's a fantastic question. I'm going to ask you to ask it again because I'm, I'm not going to be able to do it justice. I was saying, when you said that you didn't feel like you had to be a representative of women in the industry anymore was it something in the industry that changed or was it something that you that clicked in you that changed yeah um i think over time um being in the industry you know like so now i was able to go from chicago where i it grew from like 
two other comic female comics that I knew. I I joke about making a distinction, but for this question, I will say female comic. Uh, knowing two to seven to you know like, and there were women who right. I didn't mention this, but I went to an all female showcase before I started it in Chicago. It was all females. There was like seven of them. They were great, but they all left. It was their showcase before they moved to LA. So if people are listening, like how were there only two? It, that's what I mean. Like there was a mass exodus of women leaving, so we kind of had to build up. And there was tons of women in improv. But when it came to stand up and me feeling like a representative, I think it changed it over time because I eventually left Chicago to a place where there were even more female comics. And my perception, although it still happens in LA, I remember going in my early years of LA and going to a show and there were no women on it. And I wouldn't have even questioned it if I were on it. Because if I'm on, I'm like, oh, wait, we're good. But I noticed that there was just all men, and I was like, this feels weird. But I wouldn't have felt weird if it was I was on it, and I'm only one. So I think over time there are more women, and there just are definitely in L.A. more female comics for sure. So there's more representation, so that changes in my mind. And there are also so many of us who are different. And I will say in L.A., and they're not being billed this way, I have done in the last two months, I think at least – three or four all-female showcases in L.A., and they're not billed as, like, the ha-ha hotties. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's actually just a show, and it was bonkers. I mean, I'm not just saying that, like, wow, women are funny. That's what it sounds like I'm saying. <laughs> but I was just like, this is incredible and inspiring, and I hadn't heard of some of these women, like Takeda Love, and like, and I know Suba Argwal, and, but there was, like, uh, yeah, Helen Hong, we were all on the show together at Improv, and I was like blown away. I was like, this is cool, because I'm not even thinking about us all being female. And I don't think the crowd is either. And we're all so different. So that's what I think the, yeah. So I don't know, I guess the industry has changed. And I've changed because I've seen all these women around me who have changed me. Thank you. Great question, great answer. Last question over there, and uh, please let, let's make it something really fantastic so that very last person that left with two minutes to go... <laughs> can frankly go fuck themselves, sir. (laughs) Following on from uh, the success of Jim Carrey and Robin Mm -hmm. Williams and going into movies, is that something you're interested in doing or is stand-up for its own sake enough? Yes, it is definitely something because it kind of almost perfectly... uh, And I've gotten to do... I've done a little TV acting too this year that I always find joy in. You know, it's fun, especially when I've gotten to work with people who I know that makes it the best because they know what to expect from you. But when it comes to film... um, I am already set to do a couple just like fun indie films with people like Sean Patton who's here. We're set to do something together um, in the summer. And so it's like, you know, it doesn't mean it's like some sort of huge blockbuster hit, but like it is something I'm excited about is to sort of be on screen and do movies. However, um, thinking about loving Jim Carrey and Robin Williams and knowing what I know, having worked on TV shows now and been on set, can you imagine being so talented and with such a vision that you show up and you're Ace Ventura? This blows my mind that anybody... Because I, I can show up and make like a choice that's like... Meh, you know what I mean? But to be like, somebody stop me! You know? Can you imagine bringing that? Like the balls that it takes like to... Or you whatever. Fallopian tubes. <laughs> it takes to show up and be that. I mean, the vulnerability, the silliness. I'm still in awe. So like I, 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 I do want to be in movies. But like, man, it would take a lot for me to be uh, like my heroes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I do have female heroes if anybody's judging me. <laughs> 
ladies and gentlemen, that's all we've got time for. Please join me in thanking Beth Stelling. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> so that was Beth. Thank you very much to Beth. Thanks as ever to Charlie Sotelo and Kelly and everyone at South by Southwest who made that possible. Um, thank you to Nathan Wood for his uh, excellent editing and production skills. And thank you to you for listening. Thanks for supporting the show uh, in, in whatever means you manage to do so, whether it's with a recurring subscription payment, which will soon allow you access to an exciting and sexy and exclusive club of sorts. It's 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 sexy of sorts and uh, it's arguably exclusive in the dictionary definition of that phrase. Um, I've been awake for an awfully long time. The boy uh, had night terrors. Oh, God, that's a whole new world to enjoy. Um, So anyway, my point being, um, thanks for either contributing financially or indeed contributing by sharing the show, rating it, particularly on your podcast app if you're an iTunes user who is outside the UK. I've got something like 850 reviews on iTunes. It'd be nice to make an even thousand in the UK. But equally, I know the American one, you know, I haven't been pushing for that so hard. So if you're an iTunes listener outside the UK, or if you're on a separate, like an Android podcasting thing, or Stitcher, or Podcast Addict, or Pocket Cast, or any of those ones, just chuck me a a friendly and positive comment on there if you fancy. Um, And it just helps to make the show more visible. So thanks for all of that. I will post Amble at you in just a moment if you'd like to hang around for that. But for now, that concludes the podcast. So, Paris, night terrors, <laughs> Parisian night terrors. The Paris gigs were so much fun. I've got to admit, on the way over there, I was very confidently expecting an English expat audience. More fool me, because... Why would you need to have an expat community in Paris if you can just literally drum, jump on a train back to the UK? So the gigs that I've done, I've done loads of shows abroad all over the world. And when I've done them, um, they have been one of two types. I now realise they've either been expat communities of largely British people or, you know, or, or they've been, you know, Australians, American people, um, native English language speakers. Um, or in a few examples, I did the... Um, uh, the, uh, a comedy festival in Estonia with the comedy club in Tallinn. And, uh, and, and similarly in Maastricht, I forget who books that. It may be a Barnstormers gig, I feel like it was, in Maastricht. Had a fabulous road trip with George Egg and Dan Evans, on which we invented a very cruel comedy-based car game. Anyway, the point is those audiences were entirely one language, Estonian or Dutch, and they all spoke English to a very high degree. One of the shows uh, on the Paris... But, I mean, you can't call it a tour if it was two nights, but the Paris double up. Um, one of the shows was to an audience who I didn't know how much English they spoke. Some of them were French and were not expecting an English show. And uh, it really, I was on my back foot to begin with, but I really enjoyed it. I was sort of hastily getting ready, going, OK, let's do all my biggest kind of visual act out stuff, which is a really fun way to prep a set list. That's quite an interesting paradigm to go, what's all my most kind of available to anyone who doesn't speak <laughs> my language stuff? And that was really fun. But it really, I kind of, it suddenly took out one of those, I think it was Eddie Izzard who said um, something about if you take away a comic's opening line and their closer you really find out who they are. You really find out how funny they are. And and I thought, oh my God, this is, in a similar way, this has swept the legs from under me. And in a situation in which I had to prepare very quickly and kind of throw the plan out the window, 
it was really, really fun. And it made me excited about testing myself in different situations. But yeah, I wonder what other kind of paradigms there are to... Reusing the word paradigms, but I'll leave it in, even though I hate myself. Um, I wonder what other ways there are of slicing up your set. What are all my sharp one-liners? I've got one or two... I write about two or three one-liners a year. Maybe by now I've got enough for a four-minute set of just one-liners. That'd be quite an interesting exercise. But um, so that made me think about that. And the second thing, holy Jesus, night terrors. Was it night terrors? Was it a nightmare? The boy was able to express afterwards a specific thing that he remembered dreaming about. He's been having bad dreams because he's a bright little guy with an overactive imagination. And um, my wife says she doesn't have nightmares. What? How can you not have nightmares? So when I say my my kid is a bright little guy, what I'm doing is directly drawing a line there between intelligence and nightmares in order to suggest that I'm more intelligent than my straight A star gaining wife. So that's what I'd always assumed, that, that if you're smart, you have nightmares. My wife is very smart. She claims not to have nightmares. Or if she does, they're kind of anxiety dreams. Really? She's never had a huge epic dream where she's been fighting zombies or trapped on a roof or exploring the concept of time itself, which I was awoken from by the night terrors. And if you're interested, um, time is the shape of a huge white cone with the point skywards. Um, Nothing more tedious than hearing about someone's dreams. But were they night terrors? Was it bad dreams? Does it make any difference in how we treat him? Suddenly it's a visit to the internet and all of the various terrifying parenting advice sites. But I don't, I mean, I would hate for him to, for this to be a thing he has to go through Oh, man, we were in an Airbnb in France and um, the neighbours knocked on the door at like four, half four in the morning. And we thought, oh, God, they can't be, they're going to complain about it. I mean, he was screaming for 10 or 15 minutes. No, no, no. Only they were really nice. And only afterwards did I think, thank God, thank God people are nice enough to knock on the door and go, is the child that we can hear screaming no in any danger? So thank you to those anonymous French men for, uh, for hitting us up in that fashion but god what a just a thing when your kid is fighting you and pushing away and trying to kick away from you and trying to basically jump out of your arms and smash himself on the floor and um god horrible i've got no point to make about that other than hoping that he isn't in for a for a phase of these or a lifetime of these or or anything like that did you have night terrors i remember having that thing where you like your but what is it a nightmare is when your might your body is asleep but your mind is awake is i mean this is sounding very pseudoscience already i had that one where your mind is awake but your body's asleep and you get really frightened because you can't move and then you start thinking about breathing and you start thinking that you can't breathe i've not had it for a while i hope thinking about it now doesn't cause it again in me or you but um i definitely had those when you're just lying there going i absolutely cannot move and i feel this weight on my chest i think some people put that down to ghosts but not me. I think it's a, a scary head thing. This is, do you know what this is? This is ghost stories all over again. Ah, free me. Right. <laughs> That'll do for now. I've got things to be doing, performative things to be doing, which I'm feeling I'm in a pre-gig state now. I'm on stage in about 10 minutes. And I su- suspect that by hanging out with some people backstage at this particular show, I have made myself overconfident. So I need to go off think myself back into a state of, oh, maybe it'll be okay, and then find that excitement back so that I don't walk on all overconfident and completely lose the room. Hmm, That'll do. Bye for now. Hey. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 